What's going on, man? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Do you think Kimberly Long is capable of murder? I think so. I seem to remember him saying, I could just kick his ass. She came at me one time with a bat and struck the hood of my truck. She could be scary. I'm innocent. I know this sounds like your typical 48 hour style murder mystery, but it's actually a lot more than that. In fact, by the time you get to the end, you're going to see that the question of guilt or innocence really doesn't matter at all. I'm Randy Page. I've been an investigative reporter for more than two decades in Los Angeles, and I've covered hundreds of murder cases here. I got interested in digging deep into this one because the judge who presided over the trial said if it were up to him, he wouldn't have convicted Kimberly Long. Well, that's what got me started. But the more I investigated, the more I realized this case goes much deeper than the question of guilt or innocence. Sure, there are a lot of twists and turns. You're going to think, yes, yeah, she probably did it. And then, well, maybe she couldn't have done it. But then I think you'll see it doesn't really matter either way. Because the decision on whether or not to send this woman to prison has very little to do with whether she did it or not. And speaking of twists and turns, Kimberly Long was convicted. Then she was exonerated. And now she faces going back to prison again. In this series of podcasts, we will examine the facts, hear from witnesses. I just want to know who killed Ozzy. <laughs> I do too. Experience the police interrogations. Your story isn't matching what they told me. Oh my God, no, no. Meet other potential suspects police investigated. Did you plan or arrange with anyone to have Ozzy killed? No. Meet jurors who examine evidence they didn't get to see at the trial. Based on the clothing, she couldn't have done it. And you will get to know Kimberly Long. I wake up every morning wondering if today's the day that they come and take me back. And it just like gets me in the gut and it scares me. Episode one, the murder. Kimberly Long was 27 years old on the morning of Sunday, October 5th, 2003. She would tell you her life couldn't have been better. She and her boyfriend, Oswaldo Condi, reconnected six months earlier, and they were now living together. She says they first met and fell in love when they were in seventh grade in Buena Park near Disneyland and lost touch when Kim was forced to move away when she was 13. Their kids from previous relationships were not around that weekend. Ozzy was excited about a big job interview the next day, and they planned to join friends on their motorcycles as they rode from one dusty bar to another in the town of Corona, 50 miles southeast and a world away from Los Angeles. Ricky! What? Kiss me. <laughs> Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz used to spend time on their horse ranch here in the 1950s. Back then, it was mostly a rural farming town. But by 2003, Corona was home to 125,000 people. Many came in search of cheap home prices. But it also attracted outlaw motorcycle gangs, including Vagos, Mongols, and Hells Angels, and many more wannabe outlaws who roared down the dusty two-lane desert highways on Harleys of their own. Wannabe outlaws 
like Ozzy Condi and Kimberly Long. Unfortunately, I thought it looked cool. I did. I thought it looked cool. I thought it was uh, a cool, like, tough way to be, you know, and I was really um, taken by it. Mm -hmm. But I think it was just the camaraderie and just how much fun it is to be out there with a group of people going to another destination, mm -hmm. getting off your bike, the attention, people want to see you and talk to you mm -hmm. and just kind of look cool, honestly. But at the end of the day, I wasn't in the inside of any Hells Angel, Volgo or anything. These were just a bunch of old bikers riding bikes. Right. You know, that's what it ended up being. Oswaldo, also known as Ozzy, was a handsome five foot seven Colombian American. He just bought his first motorcycle a month before, a Honda, not a Harley, by the way. And the two of them couldn't wait to saddle up with some of their friends and bounce from one bar to another. It took Kim and Ozzy a bit longer to get there than the others because Ozzy was afraid to ride on the freeways. Yeah, we were just new at, at riding. He was new at riding. I think it's up and around this corner, believe it or not, on the left-hand side. Recently, Kimberly agreed to go back with me to one of the bars they went to that day. There it is. Oh, yeah. It's called The Sportsman. This looks like a desert watering hole. As my car bottoms out in the dirt parking lot. Yeah. Whoops. Ooh. Ooh. It's your Prius. Yeah. I look over and see an old brown building with a silver metal roof. There's a sign on the roof which says the Sportsman Bar and also a big yellow arrow with a beer mug with little lights in it pointing toward the front door. I also see written in white paint on the cement directly in front of the entrance, the words motorcycle only. You wanna go in? What oh. do you think? All right, let's go. You down for it? Yeah, I'll get my license. First time we've been in a bar since when? Since since I came home. So way before that. This is what, uh, March 23rd, 2009. She hadn't had a drink in more than nine years, seven of those while she was in prison. As I open the door, I feel like I'm stepping into a different world. looks the same. Does it? Mm-hmm. Definitely looks the same. The band is usually there. And... She's pointing at a small stage about a foot taller than the dance floor as we step up to the bar and order drinks. Hi. Hey there. Hi. Do you drink diet? How about a couple of Cokes? Diet Coke and a regular Coke. Yes, yes please. Let's go get a table. Over here. It's good. As we sit down at a table, I look back over at the bar and I see a guy with a long gray beard nursing a beer. A younger guy with a cowboy hat feeds the jukebox near the pool table. This is just such a classic bar. Is it? <laughs> I mean, really dark, all old wood, certainly not fancy. No. You're right, it is, isn't it? Just your classic. Bud Light posters on the wall. Sign says, no guns, tasers, clubs, knives. We're out of here. <laughs> it is the first time she's set foot in this honky-tonk since the night of the murder. That day we were sitting all over there. 
all of us were. On the bar there? Yeah, we're sitting over there. What's it like to be back in here again after all these years? Um, I have to say a little exciting. Maybe that's the alcoholic side of me. Um, but if I, I think if I stop and I think too long, I'll be reminded of this was uh, the beginning of um, my nightmare. slow because he's a beginner so that's jeff dills he will soon be at the center of kimberly long's nightmare he's inside a small interrogation room at police headquarters in corona and the interview is being videotaped who's with you um immediately with me was just her and ozzy mm -hmm. we were sitting together we had three lawn chairs up against the hamburger place under mm -hmm. the trees on the grass we just sat there and drank Dills is a big guy, looked to be close to 300 pounds. He had medium-length hair under a white ball cap with a black brim, and he had a short gray beard and a mustache. How um, much did she have to drink? She had, um, I know she had at least one regular-sized beer, and then, I don't know if it was her, Ozzy had some great big beer, and then she went back and got another beer. Dills told police he was with Kim and Ozzy all day as they went from one bar to another. And he was still with them at the last bar they hit that night, the Maverick Saloon. Bike night, so there was quite a few bikes. I'm going to say 20 plus bikes. Um, Kim bought me a drink. Um, my friend Steve bought me a drink. By now, at Mavericks, it's well into the evening. Kim and Ozzy are beginning to argue. Ozzy says he doesn't like the way Kim's flirting with other guys. Kim stomps off into the parking lot, refusing to ride home with Ozzy, and starts to walk home. Another friend pulls up alongside and tells her to hop on, and he gives her a ride home instead. They all meet in front of Kim and Ozzy's house, and Kimberly is loud, drunk, and angry. Again, here's Jeff Dills. She started hitting him with uh her helmet. She like swung it at him a couple times and he just like went like this and it like hit him on the shoulder and stuff. And he had his big motorcycle jacket on so I know it wasn't bothering him. Mm -hmm. you know? And he was just trying to calm her down. Did she hit him in the face at all? Was she trying to in the face? One time and that's when I stepped in between them. Because she hit him in the face and I saw his, his expression go to, I might hit you back. Mm -hmm. And I stepped in between them. I said, okay, you know, go inside and finish this or one of you leave, because if someone calls the cops, one of you is going to jail. Dills told police he watched Kim tell Ozzy to pack up his stuff and get out. So it ended up that she ended up leaving with me and Ozzy agreed to that. She told him to get his shit out and move out of the house tonight. She said, be gone by the time I get back, kind of thing. Kim hops on the back of Dills Harley and the two rode to his house a few miles away. According to Dills, it's now about midnight and they decide to jump into his hot tub. I offered her some boxer shorts and t-shirt to wear, mm -hmm. but she opted to go in with her panties and a, I gave her a tank top to put on. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we sat in the spa and did our thing in there. And we, uh, you did your thing, what, I mean, just sat and talked and bullshitted with her? No, I told you. 
Yeah. You're kissing in the jacuzzi. Yeah. We and we pulled around in there, and I, I went down on her, and that was pretty much it. Mm -hmm. I didn't get any. Jeff Dills told police Kimberly suddenly jumped up and said she had to leave. He reluctantly agreed to give her a ride, and Dill says he pulled up to her house, watched to make sure she got through the front door, then rode back to his place. Kimberly told police when she turned on the light, she saw Ozzy slumped over on the living room sofa. His eyes were swollen shut. He had blood on his face. And she says she first thought he'd been in a fight. Okay, and what'd you do? I walked over to him. I think I tried to shake him. Okay. But I didn't shake him that much because I guess something was wrong with the ear. Mm -hmm. He has a big gash in the side of his head. Right. And then, uh, no response. I know, I know earlier you said that he was breathing. You can hear him gurgling. He was fucking breathing. She told police she ran into the kitchen, grabbed the phone, and called 911. It's important to note she made that 911 call at 2.09 a.m. The recording is extremely distorted, but if you listen closely, you can hear the terror in Kimberly's voice. It turns out Ozzy wasn't really breathing when Kimberly heard him gurgling. The coroner says he was dead well before Kimberly placed that 911 call. The coroner wrote in the autopsy report, the cause of the victim's death was blunt force injuries to his head. The injuries would lead to bleeding into the lungs, choking on one's own blood, and then death within minutes. That's Detective Dan Bloomfield talking to Kimberly at police headquarters later on the day of the murder. Everything was perfect. He was my match. There's nobody else that could compare to him. Not one person. Not one person. Not one person. He was it. He was it. I have fucking nobody. I have nobody. I don't want to go home. I don't want to take a shower. I don't want to do anything. Because every time I do something, he's always right there. He used to follow me around the house. I have fucking nothing. I have nothing. I can't go to work. I can't do anything. I can't do anything. As I watched the washed-out, almost black-and-white videotape of Kimberly's interrogation, this next moment caught my eye. She is alone. I watch her pull her chair up to the bare white table, put her head down, and fall apart. No, no, It's still the day of the murder, and Detective Dan Bloomfield is asking Kimberly questions about who might have done it. Do you have any idea who would have, who would have done something to who? We have complaints out. We're going to trial. Against who? Cheyenne and Lovejoy.
Cheyenne Lovejoy was Ozzy's former longtime girlfriend. She was then a 29-year-old medical benefits specialist. She was also a part-time bartender. It's worth noting, just days before the murder, Ozzy applied for a restraining order against her. He also filed for the custody of their son. Here's Cheyenne talking to a polygraph examiner a few days after the murder about a recent conversation with Kimberly. Okay, what did you say to Kim? Yeah, I just wish I could kill her. Okay. I wish I could kick her ass. In fact, over the I phone had, and stuff. Yeah, over the phone. I told people I hate her. I hate her. She's trying to take my kid. When all this cools down, I'm gonna go kick her ass. I'm gonna go okay. back and kick her ass. Cheyenne was then asked about the time she went to Kimberly and Ozzy's home, wrote "deadbeat" in permanent marker on his truck, and squirted glue in the door lock. The night you went over there and rode on on Ozzy's car, mm -hmm. okay. If Kim would have come to the door, what would you have done? I don't know. I would have asked for him, and if she would have given me problems, it would have been a fist fight. Mm -hmm. Not a doubt, huh? Mm -hmm. Police also questioned members of Ozzy's family about Cheyenne. Here's Detective Bob Newman talking to Ozzy's brother, John Condy, in a telephone interview. So basically what I would like to get from you is um, some background kind of between, okay, between Ozzy and uh, Cheyenne. And just to, just give me what you know. I mean, don't hold anything back and... I'll ask you more questions if, because um, it seems like a lot of people that we're talking to, it seems like she might have the potential of doing something like this, so. Yeah, she, um, the times that I've been talking, excuse me, talking to him, uh, -huh. uh she had, uh, threatened to kill him and kill his, uh, Kim. Okay. Um, her exact words that he told me was he was, he wanted to slice, slice their throats. Okay. Um. And that, is Ozzy telling you that? Yeah, he was telling me this the other day. And why would why did she want to slash his throat or their throats? You know, I I don't know. They were having conflicts. You know. Uh huh. Um, I think she was jealous of uh, Kim. Uh huh. Um, and she just vandalized his truck. I think you guys got all that information, right? I I believe there were some reports made. I'm not sure. Yeah, she also sent a letter in the mail with all kinds of vulgar things and everything to Kim. Here's the letter Cheyenne sent to Kimberly about a month before Ozzy's murder, read by one of our producers. I've removed some of the graphic sexual descriptions, but you'll get the idea. Hi, sweetie. How are you? Well, I'm doing pretty good. I just wanted to write and say hi. Oh, and to let you in on a little secret. Remember, oh wait now, you'll have to think hard because you were all lushed up that night. But it's okay, I'll refresh your memory. It was about two months ago on a Tuesday night. You and Ozzy went out to a bar and got into a fight. Well anyway, being the whore that you are, you left him there and took off with some other guy. Well guess where he ended up that night, honey? With me. I know he told you when he came home from work the next day that he spent the night in a hotel. But let me tell you something, he lied right to your face. He came down to my house and f***ed the shit out of me all night long. It felt so good to have his c*** all up in me and to have him call out my name in bed while you were at home wondering where he was at. The thought of that just puts a grin on my face from ear to ear. He told me that I was on his mind lately, and you know I was. And when we talked the next day, he told me about the conversation you had with him. You told him that you were sorry, and you were drunk, and you wouldn't know what to do if you lost him. So he lied and stayed with your pathetic ass. So anyway, I hope this doesn't damper your day, but I just wanted you to understand why I get so angry when he doesn't take care of his kids. That's the real Ozzy. 
Oh, and when you ask him about this, and if he actually has the balls to admit it, it wouldn't surprise me if he told you that he was drunk. But ask him what his excuse was when he woke up in the morning and f***ed me again. You can sit and laugh while you think you're getting your way. But let me tell you something. I will always get the last laugh in the end. God, I wish I could see the expression on your face right now. But it's okay, sweetie. You can have him. Yeah, he's okay for a f***, but I'll send him home to you since I don't want a broke mother f***. Anyway, girl, I really hope you love this guy even though he cheats on you, because I promise when I get done with him, you'll be supporting his ass forever. Truly yours. Hugs and kisses. Cheyenne Lovejoy would not return my phone calls. And I left her a lot of phone messages, including this one. Hi, Cheyenne. Randy Page calling from the CBS LA Newsroom. I've, as you know, left multiple messages. It's really important that I speak to you. I know you're working today. Your assistant there said you're in the office. Um, so please give me a call back. It's really important. Um, let me give you my uh, work phone and my cell phone. Uh, as for her alibi, Cheyenne was with a man who took her out to dinner and later to a motel on the night of the murder. Police eliminated her as a suspect. Do you know where you were at last Sunday night? Yes. Where were you? I was out to dinner with my, um, um, a guy that I'm seeing. During her lie detector test, Cheyenne emphatically denied any involvement in Ozzy's death, and she passed every relevant question on the test. But consider this one. Quote, did you yourself plan or arrange with anyone to have Ozzy killed? She answered no. And on this question and this question alone, the examiner concluded, I am unable to determine Cheyenne Lovejoy's truthfulness regarding this matter. Kimberly's ex-husband, Joe Bugarski, was also investigated as a possible suspect. According to court documents, he'd hidden a video camera behind the air conditioner in Kimberly's bedroom, and he put a voice-activated tape recorder under the bed after she kicked him out and Ozzy moved in. Could the jealous ex-husband be the killer? Joe had an ironclad alibi. He spent the night of the murder on a bunk bed with his son sleeping next to him and his new girlfriend sleeping on the upper bunk. Corona homicide detectives soon set their sights on Kimberly Long. Was she violent? She could be violent, yes. That's Joe Bugarski, Kim's ex-husband. She came at me one time, I don't remember what it was about. She came at me one time with a bat and struck the hood of my truck. Uh, she came at me with a knife one time, a butter knife. Uh, now, and that has also turned me into someone I, I'm not, you know. She, I became a monster myself. I punched holes in the wall, I threw things, I broke windows. You know, just from fighting, period. Joe agreed to meet me outside of Carl's Jr. near Disneyland to talk about his turbulent relationship with Kimberly. When, when she came at you with a butter knife, was it your impression she wanted to, to... No, I think she was just trying to scare me, and I uh, threw her over the couch, you know, and I took the knife away from me, from her, and uh, this is in the court records, and I put it up to her neck, and I said, don't ever fucking do that again, or I'll kill you, you know, just out of rage, but I would never do that. I mean, there is a big difference between getting mad and throwing things at people and, and, walking, really someone, yeah. and walking through a door and brutally murdering them. Do you believe Kimberly Long's capable of crossing that line in an instant? That's like a that? good question. I mean, I don't want to say it was close to that, but uh, it could be. She could be scary. You know, she could be scary. There was that. a time I've said this before that I was scared I wasn't going to wake up. You know, the next morning. 
there were times that happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just by what she said, you know. And she was drunk, of course, and doesn't remember the next day, but yeah. So there were three suspects, ex-girlfriend Triana Lovejoy, estranged husband Joe Bugarski, and Ozzy's girlfriend Kimberly Long. Now check this out. There was no physical evidence linking any of them to the murder. There was no murder weapon found, no bloody clothes, no evidence the sinks or showers were used to clean up, no damp towels, no fingerprints and blood smears on the walls, nothing pointing to the killer. And there was a limited time frame. Ozzy was last seen alive about 11.30 that night when witnesses saw him arguing with Kim in front of their house. And Kim found him dead and called 911 at 2.09, so he had to have been murdered sometime between 11.30 and 2 o'clock. Cheyenne Lovejoy and Joe Bugarski both had alibis for that time. Cheyenne was on a date. Joe was with his new girlfriend and his son. As for Kimberly... She was with Jeff Dills until she walked into her house around 2 in the morning and found Ozzy dead. But was it really 2 a.m.? That's where Jeff Dills comes in. Now, this is important. He told police he knew precisely what time he dropped Kim off because he said he looked at the clock after he got home. I remember noting the time as 1.36. 1.36? Going backwards from the 1.36, I had to drop her off between 1.20 and 1.30. Now remember, we know Kimberly called 911 at 2.09 a.m. because phone records don't lie. So if Jeff Dills dropped her off between 1.20 and 1.30, what was she doing during those 45 to 55 unaccounted for minutes? Listen closely as Detective Ron Anderson confronts Kimberly at police headquarters on October 9th, three days after the murder. It is the moment she realizes she is now the prime suspect in Ozzy's murder. Based largely on Jeffrey Dill's timeline, Kimberly was arrested and charged with Ozzy's murder. Then, before the prosecution's star witness could be called to testify at Kimberly's murder trial, Jeff Dill's died. Coming up on our next episode, a phone call with Jeff Dill's before he was killed. He was very nervous, very upset, and he said, they made me say what I said. You know, they, they were out to get somebody. 
If it wasn't her, it was going to be me. Flaw Justice is produced by Randy Page and edited by Richard Alvarez, associate producer B.J. Dahl. If you haven't done so already, be sure and subscribe to this podcast. When we release new episodes, you'll be the first to know. And if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. If you have any information on this case, I would love to hear from you. You can get a hold of me directly through our website, flawedjustice.com. Also on the website, you can watch the interviews and police interrogations, look at crime scene photos, and you can see television news stories I produced on the Kimberly Long case and much more. We will also have links you can go to if you'd like to get involved, either to support Kimberly or the police and prosecutors, or just stop by and share your thoughts. We would love to hear from you. Again, that's flawedjustice.com. If you would like to learn more about Kimberly Long's case and other Innocence Project cases, you can go to the California Innocence Project's website, and it's easy to remember, californiainnocenceproject.org. Original theme and music composed and performed by Randy Page, with additional contributions by Megatrax. Special thanks to the folks at CBS in Los Angeles, including President and General Manager Steve Malden, Vice President and News Director Tara Feinstone, Director of Digital Content B.J. Dahl, Assistant News Director Jennifer Pierce, Managing Editor Paul Button, and Producer Jerry Constant. Flawed Justice is a production of CBS Los Angeles and KCBS-TV. Thanks for listening.